Hello and good evening. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the London School of Economics. Um, my name's Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Forum is, um, is an educational charity based at the LSE, and our aim is to bring philosophy to a wider audience. And you can read a bit about us on our website, and you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. So this evening, we are honoured to be hosting Professor Slavoj Žižek. Professor Žižek is a world-renowned public intellectual. He's the international director... I wouldn't sell my mother <laughs> for that statement. Yeah. He's the international director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities. He's written more than 50 books, which have been translated into 20 languages. Um, he writes on very wide-rangingly across philosophy, psychoanalysis and politics. Now, he's speaking to us today to mark the launch of his new book, um, and he will be available to sign copies of the book here right after the event. Now, his talk today is entitled Against the Double Blackmail, Refugees, Terror, and Other Troubles with the Neighbours. That's it. Yes. Thank you very much. I hope you will not be disappointed, uh, and I hope your final impression will not be the way I'm usually now attacked. The last attack, somebody told me I like it. I was characterized as a crack-addicted millionaire fascist. <laughs> and it's crazy. Never in my life, I'm the only one from my generation of whom you can say this, never in my life did I try even the smallest, what's the softest one, marijuana or whatever. <laughs> never. And as to fascist where it's becoming almost a meaningless term today. When you don't like something, it's too radical, too whatever, you say fascist. You know, I was called uh, by Alan Johnson, I think, an independent uh, leftist fascist. You know what's the origin of this term? From what I know, Habermas used it in the 60s when there was a student movement in Germany for the more radical left, links fascism, that's the origin. So don't you agree that fascism is today, de facto, one of these pseudo-categories where you see something happening in politics that you don't like, but you don't have an exact interpretation theory what is happening, so you just say, oh, it's fascism and so on. And I think it's, this is especially dangerous today when we do have new forms of anti-immigrant racism and so on and so on. But I think it's cognitively an empty gesture, a big mistake to just claim fascism, fascism and so on. Okay, I don't want to lose time. I will try to do something, not just to give you an overview of the book and so on, but to give you an example that I don't refer to in the book, which will be precisely against another double blackmail concerning sexual difference. Because, as they say in China, when there are cat great catastrophes, we do live in interesting times today. And one of the interesting things happening is this violent return of sexual difference as a political category, on both sides, that's my point, not only with the fundamentalists, Boko Haram and so on, but also with whatever they call in the United States left liberals and so on. And after this, I will try to propose some further 
theoretical points. So I would like to begin with today's uh, Palestina, Palestine, where there is, I think, an extremely important struggle going on, ignored in the West, mostly. Two figures are at its center of this struggle, Mohammed Asaf and Tamer Nafar. Asaf is a pop singer from Gaza, wildly popular not only among Palestinians, not only in Arab world, but now even in parts of Europe. He's this ideal, beautiful, good boy. A young, charismatic singer, a beautiful uh, tenor voice, singing politically more or less neutral songs, except some kind of a pro-Palestinian twist, but not political, like we love our country, our country should be free, and so on, and so on. And he's supported by all sides. Hamas in Gaza tolerates him. Palestinian Authority proclaims him the cultural ambassador of uh, Palestine, and so on, and so on. Uh, politically, he is a unifying figure above political divisions. Now, a strange thing happened. In March of this year, a month ago, Asaf declared in an interview that, as a part of keeping tradition, the idea is that Israeli occupation or whatever Western influence undermines authentic Arab or Palestinian traditions, that he would not allow his sister to sing in public. Then we get to the good guy, to my hero, Tamer Nafar. He is a Palestinian rap artist who is the main actor and co-writer of Udi Alonis, my Jewish friend, movie Junction 48. It's, it should open, I don't know when here, but it was a triumph in, in Germany at the Berlin Festival. Uh, if you have any suspicions of uh, Udi Aloni, the uh, Israeli ambassador immediately attacked him, the Israeli cultural minister attacked him, and so on and so on. So, uh, Tamer Nafar responded to Asaf, to that beautiful guy. I will quote the letter, it's not too long one. If any other pop artist said, according to our tradition, women are not allowed to sing, and on a personal level, I cherish these traditions, so I cannot allow my sister to sing, I would protest and hurt him. But since it's Asaf, our Cinderella from Gaza, saying these words, I still will have rage, but mainly I am hurt. Like the Palestinians who were united for the first time in the streets of Gaza, the West Bank, the diaspora, the refugee camps, and inside the 48 Israel to support Muhammad Asaf, we ask Asaf to join us on the same streets to encourage the girls from Yemen, Gaza, Morocco, Jordan, and so on, to encourage that girl who is dreaming to sing, dance, write and perform. We as Palestinians must fight the Israeli apartheid and the gender apartheid. My dream is to march hand in hand, a woman holding a man's hand against any separation wall. It is not reasonable to walk separately and ask for unity at the same time. You want to talk about traditions from personal experience? I used to be angry, to be an angry kid in the ghettos, 
of lead this suburb of Tel Aviv, I wouldn't claim, I wouldn't calm down unless my mother sang to me a Fairuz song. That is the tradition I want to cherish. So, my dear Arab sisters, sing as loud as you can, break the borders so we can calm down. Freedom for all or freedom for none. End of it. Aloni's film, Junction 48, where this guy, Tamernav, uh, uh, is uh, the hero, plays the hero, deals with <coughs> the difficult predicament of the young Israeli Palestinians, Palestinians descended from the families which remained within Israel after the 48 independence war, uh, young Palestinians whose everyday life involves a continuous struggle on two fronts against both Israeli state oppression and the fundamentalist pressures from within their own community. For example, in his songs, Nafar mocks the tradition of honor killings of girls in Palestinian families. For what? Typically, for our perverted logic of political correctness, he is regularly attacked by Western PC politically correct leftists. A strange thing, I have it on video, somebody taped it. A strange thing happened to Nafar during a recent visit to the United States. After he performed his song protesting honor killings at the Columbia University campus in New York, some anti-Zionist students attacked him for dealing with the topic. Their reproach was the standard one. In this way, he promotes the Zionist view of Palestinians as barbaric, primitives, and if there indeed are any honor killings, of course, Israel is responsible for them because the Israeli occupation keeps Palestinians in primitive conditions, and so on, and so on. And Nafar gave to them, to these critics, a wonderful, dignified reply. I quote him. When you criticize me, you criticize my own community in English to impress your radical professors. I think in Arabic to protect the women in my own hood. You see, this was such a perverse event where instead of celebrating this unique chance, we can fight together, we can connect the struggle against apartheid in Israel with the struggle for women's rights, the two are opposed. You are prohibited to mention this too much. Nafar's point is that Palestinians do not need the patronizing help of Western liberals. Even less do they need the silence about honor killings as part of the Western leftists' respect for the Palestinian way of life. These two aspects, the imposition of Western values as universal human rights and the respect for different cultures, independently of the horrors that can be part of these cultures, are the two sides of the same ideological mystification. A lot has been written about how the universality of universal human rights is twisted, how they secretly give preference to Western cultural values and norms. For example, the priority of individual over community and so on. But we should also add to this insight that the multiculturalist, anti-colonialist defense of the multiplicity of ways of life is no less false. It covers up the antagonisms 
within each of these particular ways of life, justifying acts of brutality, sexism, racism, and so on as simply expressions of a particular culture that we have no right to judge by our foreign Western standards. To be very clear here, as an old-fashioned Marxist, of course I know this line of thought. Western human rights are false, they secretly privilege certain values, they're basically the rights of white men, of property, and so on. No problem for me in this. But nonetheless, their universal forum matters. This is why, if you know a little bit of history, you know this. From the very beginning, they opened up a certain way. Remember Mary Wollstonecraft? Immediately, why not also us women then? For me, maybe one of the absolutely greatest events of, of last centuries, the Haiti Revolution, where the black says, no, we can also do it. Then, socialism, whatever you want. So you see something, this is the beauty of historical dialectic. The usual story we like to narrate, and it's the official conservative story, is the story of degradation. Some, for example, some original, authentic culture gets commercialized, mystified, and so on. I'm more and more incidentally skeptical about that. For example, in my absolutely, I admit it, evil mind, I like, you know, uh, I'm critical towards all religions, but... Uh, and also towards Islam. But I claim things that are attributed to Islam are often performed in no less violent way by other religions. And my special target, it's a great, not even a religion, I'm talking about Buddhism, spiritual movement. And uh, uh, those who hate uh, Islam usually say, but nonetheless, aren't the terrorists uh, Muslim? Did you hear about Buddhist terrorists? Sorry, I have. Our media just ignored them. There are, and let me tell, name you some countries in, uh, in their fight against Tamils in the old Ceylon, now it's Sri Lanka. Absolute Buddhist terrorism. Thailand. Thailand up to a point, uh, uh, even uh, uh, Myanmar and so on. You have absolute Buddhist terrorism there also. I've written about it, and now we'll say, but this is a distortion, but how this, does this happen? Buddhism is such a noble attitude, abolish all suffering, and so on. Oh, it's so nice to read. <laughs> Let me improvise a little bit. How this happened? All the standard tricks were used by Buddhists from the very beginning. Okay, Buddha was good, a pure guy. I admit this, because you know why? He even didn't want to talk about religion. He was kind of a totally secular teacher whose point was how to diminish suffering. But uh, there was already immediately after the death of Buddha a fight of, okay, we are citizens of a state, should we fight in a war or not? So very soon after Buddha's death, I love them. Three lines of argumentation allowing you to squeeze out emerged. The first one was the standard one that we also know in Europe. It was, you know, this ominous distinction between lesser evil and the greater evil. Like, you are allowed to kill some people if in this way you prevent 
much more people to be killed. Sounds nice, but and up to a point, I admit it, it's a reasonable attitude. But remember, this was one of the big justification of Japanese invasion of China. Chinese are like naughty children, and we have to be like severe parents, beat, kill some of them, so that we bring peace to China. Second uh, line of reasoning is more ingenious one. It uh, refers to this basic Buddhist view that, I simplify it, that reality is just a flux of impressions, there is no substantial reality, and they simply take this to the end and claim, and claim so what's the problem? There is no reality, so don't worry about it, kill, and so on, and so on. Like it's a very radical position, but very strongly advocated, because then you have a, another position, the most ominous one, advocated, maybe you know the story, among others by Suzuki, the great uh, Zen Buddhism popularizer, when I was young in the hippie movement, before that he was, of course, uh, 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 propagating uh, Japanese militarism and so on. And his idea was that uh, the best way to train perfect soldiers is through Buddhism. And maybe you know the story, I like to repeat it, it's wonderful. That's his example, is this one. Sorry to be taste, uh, tasteless, but that's my, my nature, I cannot help it. <laughs> Let's say we are on a battlefield, you are my enemy. I have a knife. I have to, no, 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 another of my friends will be on the other side. When you do this, you don't get out so easy. Okay, he gives this example. If I'm still caught in the illusion of Maya, what they call, I think I am a free agent, have a substantial ego, then I have some problem. Like, you are a nice lady, it's problematic, it will hurt you, it's difficult to stuck my knife into you. <laughs> but once I accept the Buddhist teaching, there is no substantial reality. Uh, if I enter nirvana, I am no longer an agent, but just, as they say, an observer of the pure flux of phenomena. Then, and this is beautiful, uh, Suzuki's, okay, beautiful in a terrifying way, terrifying way, the script, he says, then the truth of me sticking my knife into you is, it's not me who is really the agent, it's part of a cosmic dance of phenomena. My knife is floating in the air, and somehow by the, by the undescribable dance of phenomena, your body gets stuck on it, nobody is responsible, and so on, and so on. I mean, I am a great partisan of Buddhist meditation and so on. And my, so my point is not to make fun of Buddhism, but just I am a sad pessimist here, how even the most noble teaching can be perverted into, into it. So back to my point, uh, anti-colonialism anti and so on and so on. The, the problem is that there is no simple way out. Of course, we Europeans did horrible things. I don't know if the last time I was here, uh, I used this story. I learned it from the United States, which is for me, I use it even these days often when I'm in London, when, what is cultural racism, masked as universalism? I learned from my friend that in 94, when the Bosnian war was ending, Bosnian women organized themselves victim of rape and so on, and some American feminists uh, tried to 
establish contact with them by writing them a letter and so on, my God. You know what was that letter? Everyone almost died of laughing there. Almost more victims than of Serb bombing or whatever. <laughs> the letter was a series of questions. And the first question was, sorry, I don't, I will say it, I remember it almost literally, it was something like this. Do you, poor Bosnian women who were raped, do you think that woman has, have, and has an eternal, substantial essence, or do you think that feminine identity is constructed through performative discursive practices and so on? And all those women just, you know, looked and so on and so on. No wonder, although I don't agree theoretically with Nancy Fraser, the New York uh, psychoanalyst, critical theorist, she wrote, I forgot the title, a very good book on how American feminism, mainstream feminism, was kidnapped by mainstream liberalism. Okay, so let's go on. The polemic between Asaf and Nafar is part of a big struggle for sexual difference which gives a new twist to the old 68 motto when I was young, sexual is political. At that point, this was, of course, a serious statement, a great truth. It means sexuality is not simply a private domain, politically irrelevant, but power struggles go on there also, which are politically, socially overdetermined, and so on. Decades ago, Ayatollah Khomeini wrote, we are not afraid of sanctions. We are not afraid of military invasion. What frightens us is the invasion of Western immorality. End of quote. The fact that Khomeini talks about fear, about what a Muslim should fear most in the West, I think should be taken literally. Muslim fundamentalists do not have any problem with the brutality of economic and military struggles. Their true enemy is not the Western economic neocolonialism and military aggressiveness, but its immoral culture. The same holds for Putin's Russia, where the conservative nationalists define their conflict with the West as cultural. In the last result, focused on sexual difference. Do you remember the victory of the Austrian drag queen, that bearded lady, who is really a man, who won the Eurovision context, Conchita Wurst, some tasteless name. Putin himself told after this contest at an interview, I quote Putin, the Bible talks about the two genders, man and woman, and the main purpose of the union between them is to produce children. And now Europe is betraying this as usual. The rabid nationalist, Zirinovsky, was more outspoken and called the victory of Conchita Wurst the end of Europe, saying there is no limit to our outrage. There are no more men and women in Europe, just it. Like in Stephen King's novel, you know, that, it. <laughs> Vice Prime Minister Dmitry Rogozin tweeted that the Eurovision result, I quote, showed supporters of European integra integration their European future, a bearded girl. I like this very much, the image of, no wonder you have Brexit here. You also don't want to be dominated by bearded girls. Now, uh, there is a certain quasi-poetic, uncanny beauty in this image of a bearded lady for a long time, the standard feature of cheap circus freaks, 
as the symbol of united Europe. Note the same logic as in Khomeini, not army or economy. The truly feared object is immoral depravity, the threat to sexual difference. And now I come to a very sad insight. In many African and Asian countries, gay movement is also perceived as an expression of the cultural impact of capitalist globalization and its undermining of traditional social and cultural forms, so that consequently, and that's the saddest thing, the struggle against gays appear as a, an aspect of the anti-colonial struggle. The same holds for, for example, Boko Haram. For its members, and strangely I met some of them who basically were for Boko Haram, they made this clear to me. The liberation of what we call the liberation of women appears as the most visible feature of the destructive cultural impact of capitalist modernization. Like one of them told me, you know what for us means globalization in its immediate impact. It means our traditional families are falling apart and so on and so on. So that Boko Haram, whose name, as you probably know, can be roughly and descriptively translated as Western education is forbidden for women, they can perceive and portray themselves as agents fighting the destructive impact of modernization by way of imposing a hierarchic regulation of the relationship between the two sexes. The enigma is thus, why do Muslims who have undoubtedly been exposed to exploitation, domination, and other destructive, humiliating aspects of colonialism, why do they target in their response what is, for us at least, the best part of the Western legacy, our egalitarianism, personal freedoms, inclusive of a healthy dose of irony, of mocking of all authorities, and so on. The obvious answer is that their target is, in some sense, well chosen. What for them makes the liberal West so unbearable is not only that it practices exploitation and violent domination, but that to add insult to injury, it presents this brutal reality in the guise of its opposite, freedom, equality, democracy. I think that Boko Haram just brought the logic of normative sexual difference to its, uh, to its extreme. The notion of sexual difference, which prescribes to each of the two sexes a specific role to play, thereby imposes a symbolic norm destined to guarantee sexual relationship, to provide the coordinates of normal sex. And again, this should be something that gives us to think, I okay, you live here in a more, at least at this level, liberal country, but isn't this interesting? How is something like Boko Haram possible? A big social political movement which wants to refound the entire social life and the central tenet is the proper imposition of uh, uh, hierarchic sexual difference. For them, that's... The, but are they so specific? I will talk about my own small shitty country, Slovenia, where now the right-wingers also have a big campaign where the enemy is 
All the honor goes here to Judith Butler. The enemy is gender theory. They claim that they sound almost like Plato, who in his Republic, when he attacks music, he says, Plato, music may appear marginal, a form of amusement, but he says music is a fundamental danger to the entire social order. Plato says if people are allowed to sing freely, and he is not afraid of the content of the songs. But thus, this very idea of letting yourself go to an uncontrolled voice, which is not dominated by meaning of the words, Plato says <coughs> you end up being as an ape, ultimately the whole social order, spiritual order will disintegrate, we will become like animals. And the same goes, you find this in Republic, it's repeated then in his thick later work, uh, The Loss. What's so interesting, my friend Mladen Dolar in his book on The Voice, which appeared by MIT years ago, developed the entire line, this is a fascinating topic for me, how the first ethical fragment that we know from the in entire history of humanity, uh, which concerns music, it's from China, 6th, 7th century BC, it says, beware of free singing, control free singing. You get some fragments from ancient Egypt saying the same. You have Plato, you have medieval Christianity. They were obsessed, as maybe some of you know, by devil's tritone, by the, some false form of singing. And the big obsession was, if you sing, words sh should control the flow of the voice. The true horror is the voice which is no longer controlled by meaning. And then the story goes on. For example, for French Republicans, the castratos, castrated boys singing in the church were the same depravity of this freely singing voice. Even, I remember, I'm unfortunately old enough, when I was young, it was quite fascinating how Russian communists at that point in the mid-50s, and American conservatives reacted in exactly the same way to Elvis Presley and later uh, uh, rock music Beatles. It was this absolute fear. I remember it was translated into Slovene, but we were not a hardline communist party, ironically, where they say, you know, all those hip movements of Elvis Presley, that that's animals. It's the end of humanity. It was total panic, as with American conservatives. So it's, but now things get really interesting, because on the one hand, yes, we have this fear. But here we really get a nice example of the logic of what Derrida calls uh, supplement, supplement, poison, uh, in the sense of gift, in the sense of something that is dangerous, but at the same time, like pharmacon for Derrida, you need a limited amount of it to keep you alive. Even already Plato has to, has to consider this. He says, this doesn't mean that singing should be totally prohibited, but it should be controlled, and as you can guess, Plato opts for this military songs, no? That singing is okay. Up to, uh, this is for me the most beautiful example. Uh, 
uh, of this ambiguity of pharmacon. Uh, okay, American right-wing fundamentalists can go against uh, rock or whatever, uh, it's uh, decadent and so on, but at the same time, they like so-called marching chants, you know, the songs sang by Marines and so on, which are a perfect example of this obscenity. Because what are the words? I was always fascinated by them. They are a mixture of limerick nonsense and sexual obscenities. Like I remember, I'm sorry if you know it, I like to repeat this one. It's from the movie An Officer and a Gentleman, where Marines think it goes like, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold. That's what I'm talking about. You know, it's sex, but at the same time a totally meaningless point. Now, the true question to be asked is, why even the institution which should stand for, you know, total discipline, order, obedience, and so on, why does it need this pharmacon, this, this thing? So, again, what I'm saying is that Sexual difference works in a similar way. Ultimately, this is the absolute foundation. So a new dogma is now slowly appearing in Europe, and I like to make this point again and again. Dogma is for me not, as the Germans say, word, a bad word. I like dogmas. We cannot survive about them. Let me give you an example so that you will see what I mean. I think we need more dogmas today. But what kind of dogmas? Good ones. Look, would you like to, to live in a country where you would have to argue all the time that women shouldn't be raped? I wouldn't like to live. I would like to live in a country where you don't rape women is simply an absolute dogma. It's just accepted. And when some guy makes these tasteless jokes, sometimes in my style, that why not, do they secretly enjoy it, and so on. You don't even argue against it. It's just dismissed as stupidity. Uh, uh, panic begin I get into a panic when all of a sudden you have to argue again. That's why for me, as I've written in another of my books, that's why for me the rehabilitation of torture, silent one, uh, waterboarding and so on, is such an ethical tragedy. Something was unthinkable 20 years ago. Now it's again a respectable topic. And I think what makes me even more sad is that you play, what is this, some divine experience, doors <laughs> opening to infinity or what, uh, that. Uh, I'm really mystified. What's, what's going on here? Okay, let's drop it. Uh, it's that uh, the, the dogma, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, uh, torture is that uh, it's even more dangerous those who argue against torture. The defeat is already that, that we have to argue. Uh, uh, now people tell me that was, I had a conflict with that, how is it called, Alan Dershowitz, that fake liberal lawyer, in a, who... <laughs> Uh, it was just a small exchange in New York Times before I was prohibited there, who claimed, uh, because he advocates regulated torture. He says, we have to torture, but the only legal way precisely to prevent abuses and so on is to legalize it. Okay, let's say, sorry, I cannot, let's say you know something, you have to be tortured. 
but don't worry, it will be done in a proper way. The doctor, <laughs> the doctor will examine you, he will determine how much pain you can endure without getting a heart attack, whatever, and then it will all be protocoled, the forms of torture, are, and so on and so on. You know what's my point here? This is the worst pragmatic realist element. My answer to it, I wonder if you would agree, is not, no, nobody should torture. Well, to be very frank, I cannot guarantee you that I would not find myself in such a situation of despair where, again, out of pure crazy pressure, I would have tortured someone. Let me give you a totally ridiculous melodramatic example. Some evil guys have my small daughter, and I know they are evil, but I have with me, I control one of them. Maybe out of pure despair, because I know that he knows where is my daughter, I would have tortured him. But I think what's very important is that even, don't you agree with this, even if you do it out of despair, it shouldn't be neutralized in a legal way. You should feel not so much guilty as you should be absolutely aware that you did something terrifying. What, what worries me is this normalization. Oh, we, the doctor, uh, doctor inspected you, everything is okay, and so on and so on. Here, I think, uh, here, I wonder if you would propose, agree with this morally conservative statement. I think that when I was young, late 60s, 70s, you know, it was the establishment spoke in official terms, and we, the leftist students, fuck you, and so on, were using dirty words like the one. And, but today, did you notice how it's more and more the opposite? Look at the American electoral campaign just, and so on. It's the, it's, uh, the right-wing populists. They are using more and more dirty language, vulgarities, unimaginable 20 years ago, so I would say let's grab a chance, and this, I see here a unique chance to connect with ordinary, decent people. No, we are the defenders, the left of common decency. We shouldn't be afraid to, to, follow, the, to follow this line. Today, it's the fanatic right-wingers who are subversive, violating limits, and so on, and so on. So uh, 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 I will try to go faster so that I don't get uh, lost. So, the, the, this is one part which should give us to think. Where does this come, this sudden return of sexual difference? Yes, in my country, Slovenia, for example, gender theory is explained in terms of a very specific uh, 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 conspiracy theory. The idea is this one. Communists tried to take over the world. They failed. So they withdrew and reflected. And they said, we failed because we didn't undermine enough common morality. People have certain basic decency, sacred family, man, woman, Christian values, and so on. So if we really want to win, we have to attack there. So communists, through their agents, implanted, uh, implanted gender theory to undermine the stable sexual difference as the very foundation, the ultimate division, articulation of our social lives. 
This is one side. But I think the story is more complex. I think it's absolutely crucial to read this return of sexual difference in this fixed hierarchic way. Women should do this, men should do this, detailed prescription of roles, with its opposite, which is, I think there are two sides of the same. Here probably some of you would disagree. What is now happening, especially in the United States, but also in some other countries, I will, uh, uh, I will uh, characterize it quickly with one word, transgender, transgenderism. I'm opposed to it. Not because I'm against gay rights, transgender rights, but what's the problem? Did you notice, I mean, I, I think it's a wonderful example of ideological struggle, because that's the ideology which is alive today. Not the big systems, theology, socialism, freedom, but ideology is alive in this, at this everyday, very everyday level of daily rituals, like how do we go to toilets? And Segregated toilet doors are today the center of a big legal ideological struggle in the United States. I hope you follow the news. Now, two, three weeks ago, on March 29, a group of 80, 80, Silicon Valley, not only but mostly, business executives, headlined by Mark Zuckerberg or Apple CNO Tim Cook, signed a letter to North Carolina governor denouncing a law prohibiting transgender people from using the public facilities of the opposite sex. The letter says, we are disappointed in your decision to sign this discriminatory legislation into the law. The business community has consistently communicated to lawmakers that such laws are bad and so on and so on. So this already should make us suspicious. How come that there is a big progressive battle where all the top businessmen are on the, uh, on, are on the liberal side? I think it worked perfectly, for example, for Apple. You can forget about slave conditions in Foxconn factories and so on and so on. We are clean, we are for Against, uh, against toilet segregation, and we did our, our, our duty. Uh, uh, I, so again, what is the problem here? It is a real problem. Wait a minute. I am not, uh, uh, the problem is more, a more deep theoretical one. And maybe you followed how this, it was on, there were some cover stories, like Bruce Springfield canceled a concert in non, uh, North Carolina, and so on and so on. So what's my problem with this? Just a definition, short one, stolen from Wik uh, no WikiLeaks, Wikipedia. Uh, what is transgenderism? The fundamental idea is this one. Transgenderism occurs when an individual experiences a discord between his or her biological sex and the corresponding gender assigned to him by society and his subjective identity. Society designates you, usually based on your uh, physical, biological features, as man or woman, but you rebel against it in multiple ways. You can be a man, man who feels and acts like a woman or the opposite. You, uh, and then you have then the whole uh, uh, 
the whole network of categories, bi-gender, three-gender, pan-gender, gender-fluid, up to a-gender. So uh, the idea is, this is basic idea, what about all those people, they are 0.3%, and why don't make fun of this, who simply, when you go to the toilet, usually in a panic, you run there, and then, my God, you feel oppressed, terrorized by this choice. Men, women, I don't recognize myself in any of the two what to do. I think it's, I'm not making fun of it, a legitimate concern, but there are serious problems here, I think. The first hint of the problem is that I always think that the extreme usually tells the truth of a movement. And the extreme here is so-called post-genderism, a social, political, cultural movement whose partisans advocate a voluntary abolition of gender, which they claim is rendered possible by recent scientific progress in biotechnology and reproductive technologies. Their proposal doesn't concern only scientific possibility, but also ethics. They claim that the claim of post-genderism is that social, emotional, and cognitive consequences of a fixed gender roles are an obstacle to full human emancipation. A society in which reproduction through sex is eliminated uh, will open unheard of new possibilities of freedom, social and emotional experimenting. It will... Are you giving me a sign that it's already... I am. Okay, okay. I like it. How ultra subtly you did it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, <laughs> it will eliminate a distinction which sustains all later social hierarchies, exploitations, and so on, and so on. I... My problem here is that I disagree with both I disagree with both poles. Of course it's easy to see how transgenderism or even or even postgenderism fits perfectly our late capitalist subjectivity where we have all the time emphasis of Against binary logic, fluidity. Everything should be fluid. Uh, you change your identities, and so on, and so on. Uh, I have a couple of uh, problems here. Uh, the first problem is, and this is the main problem, uh, this is not how actually sexual difference functions. What both positions the Boko Haram and transgenderists. What, they, what, what uh, disappears in both cases is sexual difference, which precisely is a kind of a tension antagonism, and this is what Lacan means when he says, il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel, there is no sexual relationship. Sexual difference precisely does not function as a, I think gender theory is here wrong, Sexual difference does not function as a simple distribution of properties. Men do this, women do this. It's precisely a name for a certain deadlock where men and women are two ways to cope with it, but both fail. For example, what's totally wrong with gender theory is not that they are too daring, but they are not daring enough 
even I who am, I doubt what kind of, some kind of a man, sorry, but I have all the time the same problem when I enter the toilet. My God, am I really a man and so on. <laughs> and I think this is part of being a man. You know, being a man is not a stable identity. A certain doubt about being a man, a certain way to include femininity and so on, is part of being a man. Being a man is not a stable identity, but it's uh, something deeply self-contradicting. And it goes the same for the woman and so on and so on. So now I will give my theory here. I think paradoxically, and I will immediately give you an example so that you don't think that I'm totally bluffing, uh, sexual difference is a difference which in a way, in its logical structure, precedes what it differentiates. We don't have two positive identities and then the difference between the two of them. No, each sexual identity is an attempt to resolve a deadlock. Let me give you an example from politics. If some of you are old enough like me, maybe you still remember those old charming times when there still was in politics left and right. Maybe most of you don't know what this means, no, but uh, uh, you know what always fascinated me in this political distinction? It's not a simple distinction of left-right where you say leftist thing this, rightist things that. Every way to describe the difference between left and right is already a leftist or a rightist distinction. Ask a true rightist. How do you see the entire field? He will usually say, I'm for a stable center, and there are extremists. So the overall picture will be stable center and destabilizing extremes and so on. If you ask a leftist, how do you see the entire image of a society? He will give you a different mapping, probably some radical split, us against them, and so on and so on. What I'm saying here is that uh, there is no neutral difference, way to, to define the difference. Every way to formulate the difference is already overdetermined by the difference. You already take, you already take sides. And what I want to say is that in a way, exactly the same goes for sexual difference. You cannot have a, a neutral formulation of the difference. It's an impossible difference. It's the name of a deadlock. And I'm not talking about a biological deadlock, but about a libidinal, and, but I will not go into that psychoanalytic Lacanian stuff today. Uh, and this brings me back to trans... Uh, trans uh, genderism. The first, okay, now the second thing that I, uh, that I uh, find strange in transgenderism is how, is how uh, on the one hand they want to move beyond all precise definitions, like no, we don't want to be put into that, uh, that uh, small place, I'm this, I'm that, I want to be beyond distinctions and so on and so on. But at the same time, they exhibit an exactly opposite tendency of, I cannot recognize myself in this or in that, that identity. I want the specific place for me, and so on and so on. If I were to be a true transgenderist, 
I would have said, screw you with your distinction. I will enter whichever toilet I want, and so on, you know. At the same time, so uh, I, my position is this one. I'm sorry, now we are approaching something that is almost philosophy. So that's, uh, we come here to the specifically Hegelian notion of difference. Uh, for Hegel, again, difference is not a difference between positive entities, but in a way it precedes the entities. So, when my, my solution, so that you will not say that I'm a brutal male chauvinist, no, no. My solution is this one. It came to me without any dirty innuendos. When I watch, I think you have them also in London. We have them now or in the UK, in my country. You know, they have this problem of categorization with, 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 uh, with waste. You know, you have usually one box for, uh, for glass, one box for paper, one box for organic waste. But then this categorization never adds up, you know. So you have, and I like this, it's so deeply Hegelian. You have paper, glass, organic waste, plastic, and general waste. Did you know? But general waste is one in the series of a general, and this is what Hegel knew. Hegel's term for this is gegensätzliche Bestimmung, oppositional determination. The, the universal dimension has to appear in the particular as one of its subspe subspecies. And Hegel has wonderful things here along these lines. For example, my good friend uh, Frank Ruda wrote a book on this. If we are here, London School of Economics, I heard that you changed the name back, that it's no longer Libyan, now it's London School of Economics. <laughs> Sorry, you must have heard this joke a uh, hundred times. What I mean is that uh, 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 he wrote a wonderful book on Hegel's notion of rebel, pebble where he notices how rebel is not simply the excrement, those who have no place in society. Exactly as such, rebel stands for humanity as such, some phrase, without, you know, the nice point of Hegel is he always knows that those who don't have a specific place within society stand for the universality as such. And I claim Applied to this, uh, my, okay, I can be here in a vulgar way very practical. I claim that my solution would have been not infinite, not bigender, trigender, but male, or how is it usually done? Ladies, gentlemen, and gender as such. And it's deeply true, because gender as such, here transgender people maybe don't get it theoretically. Gender as such, does not stand for something beyond differences. Just it's sexual difference as such prior to the very the very deadlock of transgender people. My God, where are they? Where do they stand? They stand for difference as such before it's uh, before it's uh, before it's specific determination. So so you see what I'm saying here. I'm saying that a Sexual difference, it's a little bit the same like, although it's profoundly different, class difference, class struggle. Uh, class struggle also for Marx uh, is not simply one class versus the other. If 
it were to be able to simply divide society into two, those up, those down, clear categorization, then you don't have class struggle. Then you have just a clear categorization. Class struggle means precisely that there are elements from lumpenproletarians, uh, middle classes, which cannot be categorized, and class struggle is basically the struggle for them. So again, the paradox is that two is always three. And it is this additional element which makes it which makes it a struggle. And I think that this antagonistic dimension disappears in both cases. Both cases, now I'm returning to this uh, Boko Haram versus transgender, both cases want to get rid of sexual antagonism. Precisely in the sense of, but not in any mystical sense, enigmatic, it cannot be determined, and so on. And I think all our poetry, art, even science, are based on this, in the sense. What pushes humans towards, uh, towards transcendence is precisely a deadlock like this. I think, but this is a general anthropological, philosophical thesis, that what we humans do is that we know how to turn an obstacle into profit. Something goes wrong, oh, we say, why don't use it in another way you know? Well, but that's another story. Again, what, and now if you allow me just one thing, I will be very short. So, my, you see, my point is the strange underlying similarity between theorists of sex, fixed sexual difference and transgenderists. They both basically want to get rid of an antagonism. They want harmony. Just one won the traditional hierarchic harmony. It's, it's clear who is man, who is woman. And it's a very tragic situation here. You know Mugabe in Zimbabwe. You know his obsession against gays. He made a big speech, I think half a year ago in the United Nations, shouting proudly, we are not gay, and denouncing gay movement as the most perfidious expression of Western imperialism, and so on, and so on. And now I come to a crucial problem. The difference between, in extreme terms, transgenderism versus Boko Haram sexual difference, the danger is that this difference, this whatever you call it, cultural, whatever, in sexual economy, uh, up to a point colonizes the class struggle so that we in the West appear as progressive for sexual, and the, the big task, maybe everything will be decided in this in. And that's why I began with Nafar, with that rev. Can we bring the two struggles together? As long as women's rights will be experienced de facto as upper middle class struggle, you dismiss the poor lower classes as fundamentalists and so on and so on, we are, we are in... We are in for a tragedy. Now, I will not go on. I will just do something which may be of some interest to you. I wanted, I made a mistake. So let's do it like this. I like this ironic idea. Stop, I'm over. It's a debate. And I start the debate by asking myself, Professor Zizek, what is the remaining stuff that you wanted to say? Graciously, I will answer the questions. 
I wanted to connect this to, it may appear disconnected, but two extreme cases of subjectivity which disturb the well-established lines of we, free Western liberals against non-integrated Muslims who become terrorists and so on. You know, the last guy, now no longer the last, that they arrested, Salah Abdeslam, one of those suspects for Brazil. I think it's fascinating to read his biography because he doesn't fit the profile of the usual. He's not this terrorist. He's not that Mohammed Atta from 9-11, severe guy. He's a fully human. He cries and so on. But there is another thing which is absolutely crucial if we want to understand what goes on. All this stupid story about uh, uh, integration, integration failed, it didn't work. It's not like that. He, first, he's not a refugee immigrant. He was born in France or Belgium, I don't know, to a family which was fully integrated. And his act, participating in terror, if he did, was precisely a revolt against integration. Now, of course, we should raise the question, was there something wrong with that integration and so on and so on. But what this means, at least for me, is that it's totally false, all these terms. We have to strive for, to better integrate the immigrants and so on and so on. And my solution here is a totally crazy one. Maybe we need less integration. No, no, don't be afraid. I'm not for these enclaves, each identity in its own, but less pressure for, how to put it, integration, especially less cultural integration. What do I mean by this? I repeat an old point which I find important so that I always repeat it. Uh, look, if there is one sentence which for me condenses the utter stupidity of the logic of multicultural tolerance. It's for me the statement, an enemy is someone whose story we were not ready to listen to. Ah, my reaction is nice to know. So Hitler was our enemy because we didn't attentively listen to. No, here I'm standard pro-British. What was great, with all my disagreements, about Winston Churchill, is that he was listening to Hitler already in the early 30s, and he immediately got it, this guy is more dangerous even than Stalin, and so on. So what I'm saying, this statement is doubly wrong, although it sounds so nice. When you don't listen to an other, you fetishize him into a mythic enemy, you should open yourself up. No, my first conclusion is, sorry, there are real enemies. And... Listening to them, yes, we should listen to them, but precisely to fight them more effectively. Second point, I think this entire topic of understanding the other is a typical liberal superego logic, you know, then you get caught in this game. But was I listening to you enough? Should I listen to you more? Did I get something? I, I think that, of course, we don't understand the others because we don't ourselves understand ourselves. Others don't understand themselves and so on and so on. So what if we simply accept that we are all in the same sheet, lost in a certain way? And the, the immediate task for me is not this, how do I know, what do you mean? But, but a kind of a tolerant, benevolent discretion. 
My ideal is not to live in some stupid multicultural community where you come with your stupid food and I have to be in, or some stupid music and I have to be interested. Oh my God, what interesting alterity. I want, my idea is to live in a big block apart, with apartments where on the one side is a lesbian couple. There are Muslims, there are Jews, there are blacks, whatever. And we very friendly, sincerely, not a, politely ignore each other, <laughs> but in a very friendly way, and then it's wonderful when it happens. From time to time, miracles happen. And, you know, it happened to me. For example, I know this will sound like the ultimate anti-Semitism. In the United States, some of my best friends are gay. But you know how it happened? They overheard me making, uh, as you can expect from me, a bad taste joke against gay people. And they immediately <laughs> took up the game. So, you know, true contact with other understanding is something very precious. It's almost a miracle when it happens. And the best way to ruin it is to enforce it. So I'm all for mixing cultures, but not with this... Uh, uh, liberal superego. We are all, you know, it's the same with political correct fight against uh, dirty words. I mean, words which are uh, aggressive, sexist, racist. You know, you always have this. First it was nigger, then it was negro, then it was black, and then they always ask, are we okay now? Is there still a trace of racism, is what I'm saying. And then we have this endless hermeneutic task, you know. Am I anti-racist again? And it's clear what pleasure they have in this. Like, almost in an orgasmic way, my politically correct friends report to me, you know, I discovered that I was still a little bit racist there, and so on. <laughs> True anti-racist society is where, for example, it's an old joke, I will not repeat it again, but... The greatest acknowledgement that I got from some of my black friends is when after we exchanged some dirty jokes, they embraced me and told me, now you can call me nigger. <laughs> the point, of course, I'm not an idiot, was not that I should really call them a nigger. But it was, it was one of these beautiful symbolic gestures. I love them. I think they are the basis of civilization. And they have them in all cultures. Here I'm not Eurocentric. You know, offers made to be rejected. This beautiful gesture where you offer something, you know it will be rejected. So although it appears a failed act, but the result is usually authentic. You know, contact. You know, also, the situation can be comic, of course, and I love these situations. You remember, like, let's say you are rich, I am poor. You, you are crazy enough, even if I want to stab you, you invite me to a restaurant. We know that you will pay. But when the bill arrives, isn't it part of manners, at least enough, that I should for a brief moment insist, no, no, let me pay. We both know that it's a game. And if you want to be truly evil, what... I'm not an anti-feminist, this is just descriptive anthropology, and women can be truly evil. You would, neutral, this is anthropology, you know. Not, then, then you would have said, and once this happened to me, you know, okay, then you pay if you want, you know. But you see, uh, this, is, this is what I believe in, and again, again uh, now I will really finish immediately by my last example. Did you read it in the news now in April? A tragic thing which happened in 
Norway, Karsten Nordal Hauken, a young progressive leftist, anti-racist, feminist politician, now we learn because he went public, we did, was raped four, five years ago by a Somali refugee, brutally, annually, he spoke about it. Yeah, immediately, if you are now sending a killing message, like, <laughs> liquid, like one of those messages James Bond gets, you know, kill him. You know. uh, uh, he, uh, uh, what makes it so ridiculous and tragic is that now the guy was condemned, Somali, and now Norwegian authorities threaten to... Uh, to, how do you call it, expel him, exile him back to Somalia, and this guy now feels guilty, Karsten, who was raped. He said, but wasn't he a victim? I mean, is it fair to punish him in this way? He was just a victim of circumstances and so on and so on, and to go to the end, he, Karsten, now feels guilty. My God, what did I cause by way of denouncing him and so on and so on? Wasn't it my racism? Now, I'm the first to admit a kind of a ethic, nobility, gentility is this. But I nonetheless think it's false. Why is it false? Because first, it's this, it's an inverted form of racism. It's this logic of we White, it's an inverted form of white man's burden, I claim. It's, you know, it's such a patronizing attitude towards immigrants or others. It's as if, you know, only whenever something goes wrong, we white Europeans have to be guilty. The others are victims. It totally deprives the others of the agency. It's also, and, this, and, I, and also this eternal guilt feeling and so on, I claim this, you know, like... All my, some of my leftist friends say, refugees coming to Europe, oh my God, it's all the result of European uh, uh, economic colonialism. We are totally responsible and so on. They are just, uh, they are just uh, not out of time, but out of whatever. No, and I'm saying that I'm against this. I think we will have to allow even more immigrants. The point is not this. The point is that this patronizing attitude, they are never guilty, we are responsible, is first reasserts our white extreme arrogance, it means they are victims, we are agents, and it will end really, really bad if we pursue this line with uh, ethical catastrophe, the end of Europe maybe. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Now, did I, sorry, did I get it correctly that for a brief split of a second. You were surprised, like, did you really finish or whatever? Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Now we pretend for some time that we live in a democracy, no? <laughs> I mean, debate and so on, please. Um, okay, we don't have much time, so do try and keep that your... That was my idea, you know. <laughs> your question's as brief as possible. Done them at the back. But uh, do we have a microphone? Because yep. I have this... And you select them, because I have such problems, I'm a little bit myopic, okay. and then I'm always accused, oh, you are a racist, you ignored that woman, that whatever, no. And maybe I am a racist, but to cover that up, you know. Okay, sorry, please. We'll take both, one straight after yeah. the other. Yeah. 
Um, could, you, uh, could you comment on the last thing you said about political correctness and the press reaction to the threats uh, against the Danish cartoonist and uh, the press all turning their back on that situation? It's da Danish, the old case, or now in Germany? Because the latest example that I like is that the Germany followed the law. It's crazy that now German courts will accuse that singer or whatever who made fun of Erdogan. Or you mean that case, it's already six, seven years ago, even more. I meant that one, but... Uh, that one? Yes. yes. You see, this is, for me, a serious problem. And here, misunderstandings emerge, and then I'm accused of fascism, European racism. You know, tolerance in itself cannot work. No, no, no. Not because whatever, we need domination or whatever, but because uh, this is what I mean when I, to provoke things, of course, advocate light culture, leading culture. The problem is that each culture, and of course, they don't exist in a pure state. I know they are mixed, but basically, if we allow this abstraction, each culture implies not only the way they live, but the way this culture relates to other cultures. For, for example, our problem is the way we perceive personal freedoms and so on. We may do in a Muslim or other third world country things which we think are normal part of our irony, but they may be deeply humiliating or whatever to them. And of course, vice versa. If we have a strong Islam community, they not only, it's not only we want to leave our way, leave us alone, but they always involve a certain way to relate to other cultures. And here you immediately encounter problems. I don't blame anyone here. To be neutral and not to blame anyone, I will take the usual victims. There are so few so that you can freely attack them. Bad jokes, uh, Roma. You know, they were once called gypsies. Roma. In Slovene, I'm sorry if you know the story, it does refer directly to your question. Uh, some ten years ago there was a big problem. A Roma girl escaped from her family because their par her parents wanted to marry her when she was 11. To, you know, they have this tradition of father arranges marriages and so on. So she escaped from her family and took refugee by the... Uh, Police. And then there was a big public debate what to do with her. Feminists totally supported her. Perfect, okay. But the problem is they didn't even notice that this was, from the standpoint of traditional Roma community, an extremely aggressive act. Because one of the leading figures of Roma community went public and, say, and says, do you know that arranged marriages are the very basic form of how our community reproduces itself. He said, you take this from us, and in two, three generations, okay, we're still maybe doing our Jewish, uh, sorry, Jewish, uh, uh, gypsy, sorry, Roma, from one mistake to the other, <laughs> barbecue, singing gypsy songs, and so on, but our cultural identity is over. So, you see, that's the problem of tolerance for me. What would you do with her? 
Now you will, you will probably, most of you say, absolutely our police or whatever welfare authorities should protect the girl. Okay, but then don't give me bullshit, don't bluff. This means you are ready to destroy, undermine gradually a certain community. You know, communal life, community, is something very brutal. It's not just folkloric dances and the way you do your food at songs. It means, above all, uh, 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 sexual relations and all that stuff, which is very brutal and so on. So that's my problem, where things emerge. Or, for example, I know that Muslims also have their gay organizations and so on, but it's an extremely sad phenomenon. Do you know that in... Uh, they had these problems in, I know of them in Amsterdam, in Denmark, and in Berlin, where fundamentalist Muslim activists, not the majority, but nonetheless, attacked gay parades and so on and so on, claiming this is an obscenity and so on and so on. So again, here, what do you do here? You have to set some limit. The pure liberal formula, each should have his, her, their way of life. We just should tolerate each other. It simply doesn't work. You have to set a limit. What do you do? And that's why I want to give all the freedom to mass. My problem is not, I'm totally opposed to what they did in France, prohibiting Muslim girls to wear veils. My problem is not that. My problem is, is a, if a Muslim girl does not want to bear to have to her face being veiled, and then her family puts pressure on her, and then she seeks refuge with, I don't know, public authority. What do you do then? There is no easy way out. So the beginning of solution for me is to admit a deadlock. If you say just tolerance, tolerance, it's not clear what type of tolerance, you know, because every tolerance is based on certain preconceptions. Like for us, tolerance means basically individual tolerance, tolerance of truth, way of life, and so on. For others, this is not what tolerance means, and so on, and so on. So I think this is a problem, and I have great Muslim friends, but you know where things once broke down. I had to run from a meeting. When, may, maybe this is a time to pause and take another question. This is called... Uh, uh, castrating phallic women. Okay, <laughs> sorry, yeah, okay. Yes. Please, does it work? Yes. Uh, so my question is also about political correctness. Uh, and I found that a lot of the things you describe as political correctness would actually be called by any serious leftist orientalism. Uh, sorry, is it that I am an orientalist for criticizing political correctness no, or that I, political correctness is... I think that you're creating a straw man out of political correctness. And most serious leftists would say that political correctness is just treating others with respect. And that what you describe as political correctness, they would call orientalism. I, uh, here, I see your point, and insofar as I understand it, please allow me to interrupt you, and then you can finish your question. The problem I see is this one, and I hinted at it. I see what do you mean, because this political correctness in enforcing its rules involve a set of presuppositions which clearly privilege 
Western type of liberal individualist subjectivity and so on and so on. But my problem is this one. I think that, as we all know, the most perfidious form of Orientalism for me is precisely a tolerant Orientalism in the sense of, oh, this is part of their culture, we shouldn't intervene. I think that both main versions are wrong. Of course, it's wrong to simply Im impose on them our notions. But it's also wrong to, to excuse everything by saying, oh, this is part, I remember this from my youth. It was sexual revolution in which I didn't participate, but <laughs> many of those people, couples, not even couples, living in commune, they were all, it was fashionable for Maoists, no? they celebrated cultural revolution. And then we learned from the media how it functioned. Sexuality in China, Eva Redgardis was caught, or a girl with a man, Usually it was, she was sent to countryside, he was even shot or whatever, no? And you know how all those leftists who wanted total sexual freedom but were Maoist also answered, no, you don't get it. In Chinese culture, sexuality functions in a totally different way. You totally, so uh, uh, my solution is an old one. The, I don't believe in some transcultural community, what I ironically call UNESCO books, you know, world culture, all described. I believe our culture is full of shit, their culture is full of shit, the only way is to somehow connect our struggles. The unity is unity of struggle, not this abstract unity, we are all humans. We are not all humans, my God. We, so again, you see, all I know I didn't precisely answer your question, all I'm saying, and on the other hand, I think that the category of, uh, the category of Orientalism, I know its history, Said and so on, is a little bit deceiving, especially I don't like the game of, but there is not one Orient, you know, there are many Orients, where in itself this is totally meaningless for me, because in this way you can defend everything. I attack a Nazism and then they will say to me, but don't you see that Nazis from Bavaria are totally different from Nazis from Prussia and so on, you know, I am here for the power of abstraction as a philosopher. I think that brutal simplifications are not just a tool, like reality is too complex, we have to simplify, but they have a truth in it. If we treat the universality as a concrete universality, for example, it can be shown that there are many, I know, very noble aspects of feminine subjectivity, not only in the preferred case of Western liberals, they say, oh, but Sufi mysticism, you get that. Uh, but nonetheless, all these forms of subjectivity refer somehow to some basic attitude towards women. And I'm here to shock you, please allow me this, because it's a nice, nice story. I'm here even not not totally just critical of Islam. Look, let's take, I use this in a couple of my books, let's take the worst example that you can imagine. You remember in Australia there was some big scandal almost 10 years ago when a Muslim, no, 
a Muslim girl, yes, went out dressed as a modern girl and was raped by some Muslim boys and some big figure of Australian uh, 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 in Islamic hierarchy, whatever, uh, uh, attacked her. She said, she, he made this terrible metaphor, comparison. He said, look, if on a street you find a piece of you, a dog finds a piece of unpacked meat, he will eat it. Whom would you blame, the dog or the idiot who left that meat there? And he said it was the same here. When she went out alone, she provoked it, she is responsible. I claim there is a feminist potential in this. Don't laugh. You know it what sense? Just think about it, what is the implicit presupposition of this statement? That we men are total idiots. Again, don't be... I see you half naked. I cannot do it. You know that? Men, we, we are like dogs. We just do it. And that the only ethical agent who can and must constrain herself is the woman. And this is a central part of Islam. Look, uh, how did Mohammed became a prophet? Read it. First, when Archangel Gabriel, I think, appeared to him, he thought he is dreaming, crazy. Then, Kadia, his first wife, convinced him that he is, uh, that this is God. In other words, there is a long tradition in Islam of a man, okay, I'm not saying they are great total feminists. But nonetheless, even if a man tells the truth, this truth, to be asserted as truth, has to be mediated through woman's recognition. It's a very interesting point, which is why with all the horrors, Taliban, Boko Haram, I still prefer Islam to standard uh, uh, whatever Hindu, orient, uh, Hindu oriental culture and so on. Because what I really hate is this kind of harmonious image, you know, men and women, yin, yang, harmony and so on. But if you look at it closely, in this harmony, it's always the woman who is down, you know, and you know who is up. Like, but while in this Muslim idea, at least there is tension there, paradoxes and yeah. so on, it yeah. offers a space for We have for run out of time, but I do want to squeeze in one last uh, question. I like that already, now we'll be really evil, already your meta metaphorics is getting obscene, squeezing and so on. <laughs> I'm horrified, I'm horrified, I must tell you. Okay, sorry, let's go, please. Uh, to move it on from political correctness, um, it strikes me that in the UK, we are constantly talking about refugees rather than migrants. There's a really big distinction made, and that's because the refugees are posed as victims and migrants are agents coming looking for a better life. Do you think yeah. that's part of the kind of liberal self-hatred? No, I that's extremely going on? agree with you. You see, this is where... You, you've got two minutes to answer this. <laughs> you know what? You know, I'm tempted to do, you know what? to answer in this Zen Buddhist way, clap with one hand or whatever, you know, and then you can think all... No, no, but seriously, I, uh, where I agree with you, it's a nice example of what, when a gentleman earlier asked me a question, the point I wanted to make, how, you see, this is ideology today, not big debates, communism or whatever, but this, how things already happen at the level how we formulate the problem. Ideology is not a false answer to a problem. Ideology is already the mystification in a problem. For example, I totally agree with you that 
The key debates are already at the level of names, you know, all these desperate distinctions, for example, immigrants versus refugees. Refugees good, immigrants bad, and so on. No, no, the fight goes on already at this level. The lesson is that words matter. Words are not just instrument and this, it doesn't matter, no? Okay. I didn't pay you enough. I expected more <laughs> applause. <laughs> I'm sorry, we have run out of time. Um, do come again. I'm not sorry. I'm glad I'm rid of you. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank you all for coming.